Good morning again. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, our focus will be verse 21. I will read verse 18 through 21. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Father, let us taste of what Paul felt, thought, and knew that would lead him to say such a thing. May you continue to work upon us in our lives that Christ would be our life, our pursuit of him. And that the great enemy of, of death has been conquered by our Savior to make our death gain. Oh, may we taste of it and take it into our lives and our education and our singleness and our, and our marriages and in the context of the local church. Help me teach this verse by the power of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So how will you stand up against the onslaught of persecution against biblical Christians? In the coming months, in the coming years that are ahead, when the governmental and the cultural systems all around us demand that you offer a little incense on the altar, proclaiming, Caesar is Lord. Curios. And you know Jesus is Curios, Lord. How will you stand? Will you cave in as some did in the first few centuries? Or will you stand as many did, and some at the cost of their life or livelihoods? I mean, after all, in our day and age, it's not incense on an altar down there, the street in Corinth or Rome. But the promise is, offer it. That's how they will allow you to go on freely being the church. Just get with the program and stop calling homosexuality sin. Stop with the anti-transgenderism talk. Stop making distinctions between male and female. And 
by all means, stop with your theology of no longer making important one's ethnicity, one's Jewishness or Gentileness. Stop preaching that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, black or white. Get with the program and see people not as individuals, but according to their racial and ethnic group that is oppressed in any given society. How in the face of terrible consequences will you stand? Our passage answers the question. And the answer is simply this. You'll stand by being a true worshiper of God, of Christ, according to the gospel. The answer to standing is to follow Paul the way he followed Christ in Philippians 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's worship. The antidote to, to caving into the fear of the world and the, the fear of culture and the fear of loss in this mortal life, the antidote is not just having the right theology but it is being a true worshiper of God in all of life and not just in church. It is being a true worshiper of God in church and not just in all of life. Worship is central to, to, to what we Christians do together in the local church and in its gatherings. And we'll get there. But remember last week we saw here in the context that Paul said he will go on rejoicing in the face of persecution. How come? Because of the prayers of the Philippians. And the supply of the Holy Spirit in him, which would cause Paul not to cave in to fear and deny the gospel of Christ. But instead, he said, Jesus will be exalted in the midst of these hostile circumstances of awaiting trial in Rome. He'll be exalted whether I'm acquitted of the charge and go free. He'll be exalted or whether I'm convicted and sentenced to death, he will be exalted. And that's where verse 21 comes in to explain why that's true or how. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21. For to me, 
Paul, to, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. That's the core of true Christianity. That's the core of what worship is. The core of worship in God's people throughout the centuries, and it's meant to, has created all kinds of different forms of worship. Liturgies. Different forms of singing and physical responses, but we must always be careful to never confuse the form with the essence of worship. The form is not worship. The form is like the, it's the cup that holds the liquid of true worship. But by the next generation, two generations down the road, you can still have the cup. You can still have the form. Everything's going on as it was. But now the liquid in there is no longer true worship, but it is merely form in ritual. What is worship? It's crucial according to Jesus. If you want, flip over to Matthew chapter 7 for a moment. No, he doesn't use the word for worship here at all, but this is at the core of it. Jesus says, starting with verse 21, Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day in the future, many people will say to me, the Lord Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? There's a form. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do... Many mighty works in your name, the name of Jesus. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Only true worshipers will inherit eternal life. True worship is true faith expressed. When it comes to what we call congregational worship, and in the Old Testament, God gave specifically, in many times in extreme detail, forms of how to worship in the tabernacle, in the temple, how to offer what the priest does, what the offerer does. When we come to the New Testament, it is silent on places where you worship. It's silent on kinds of buildings and on styles of music. There are no forms in, in that sense. There are in the New Testament a to-do list, 
as Jesus' people gathered together in the local church. For instance, you are to publicly read the Bible out loud when you gather together. You're to preach it or teach it. You're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's some to-do list, but the forms in which they may uh, vary, that's open. See, with the coming of Jesus, there is a radical focus of worship as an internal God-centered experience of the heart which then manifests itself in all of life. Remember Jesus with the woman at the well, the Samaritan? They got the forms of worship that God gave to the Jews. They got it wrong. And Jesus has no problem telling them that. He says to the woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know here, Mount Gerizim. You got it wrong, Samaritans. We, the Jews, worship what we do know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. The temple's in Jerusalem, and that is right. Then he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so Jesus just declared, geography is no longer important. Whether we worship here in this, what we call a church building at Anza Baptist, or we worship in a house, it's all good. What is crucial, no matter where we do that in a, as a congregation, what is crucial is that we worship in spirit and in truth. The focus, in other words, is to be on the essence of worship. Not on the place, not on the forms and different cups we use together to channel and help and express worship. Jesus looked at people who, in his own day, fellow Jews, who practiced biblical Old Testament forms of worship. And he said to them in Matthew 15, 7 to 9, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And therefore, in vain do they practice the forms. In vain do they worship me. Worship is not an external act in itself. 
worship is the internal heartfelt love and joy in God that comes out not only in church services, but mainly it comes out in everyday life and how we do our money and how we do our sexual natures and how we not do them. How we do work or be an employer or an employee. How we do relationships with other persons made in the image of God. It has to do with how we respond to Christ belittling doctrines in the culture. And yes, true worship comes out in and it is meant to come out in singing and in praying and in hearing the word read and taught. But, for instance, music, the music itself and with the lyrics, music is not worship. It's a means of worship. A God-given, wonderful gift as a cup for worship. Worship is a heart issue. I'm going to go to a worship text that does not use the word worship. But Jesus here is getting to the very core of it when he says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Money. Okay. Wait a minute. I thought that's about service, Joe. Where do you get worship? Okay. These are Jesus' words. He puts God over up against money. Things of the world. Mammon. Okay. You can't serve money. Well, okay. Got to think about it. How do you serve money? Well, you don't wake up in the morning and go to money and talk to it and say, Hey, can I... Uh, do something for you today, money. Can, can I take your, your clothes to, to the laundromat for you? What else do you need done? That's not that kind of service. <laughs> it is to serve money is to look to money, to view it. What are the rules of money? How do I make money make more money? And, and then you're, you, you, you are slave to tell me I want happiness. You are the answer. And so your life is driven by it. And you can't, you can't look to money, therefore, like that. That's called idolatry. You've just made it your God. You can't worship money. Oh, you, and God. Worship is going to God. You can't serve God in money. You can't look, God, I want eternal happiness with an honest heart that knows it's Guilt and it's sin. And God says, I am merciful. And he says, I've sent my son. I have put away your sin. Follow me. 
do. Tell me how to act, how to feel, how to live. You're my happiness. That's worship. Do you look to God and His grace and His promises for your true fulfillment, for your true happiness? Is that your pursuit? Or do you look to money or mammon? You can't worship both at the same time, according to Jesus, because what one looks to as the source of their fulfillment, their contentment, what, the, the end, this is what I really want. What you look to like that is what you worship. Whether that object be alcohol to the drunk, whether it be drugs or heroin to the heroin addict, you just watch their life and they worship in all of life. I'm out of that which I deem right now to make me the most satisfied or least in pain is my heroin. I don't have any more money. I need it. They will desperately break into someone's house to get the money. Their life is driven. And so you watch it and you say, oh, their God is heroin. It could be sex. That's the God. It could be the praise of others. What you look to brings you. That's my drive for satisfaction. That's what you worship. Or it can be God in Christ. We praise and thus we exalt what we love the most. And that will come out in varying circumstances of life. And that's what we see in Philippians 1, verse 20 and 21. It is my eager expectation and hope, Philippians, as I sit here in jail, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Nothing expresses more at all how great and glorious God is than verse 21. That's the essence of worship. And it will determine how Paul prays, how he sings, how he testifies in court about sin and judgment and the law and the gospel of Jesus Christ. His goal is that Christ be exalted whether he's released and goes on living or whether he's convicted and dies. And the way that that will happen is the reality of verse 21. The essence of worship. Verse 21 shows how living or how dying exalt Christ. That's why verse 21 begins with the word for. Gar. In other words, because. 
Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, because to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So just his logic is clear. So just let's just take the death part and then we'll go to the life part. Because the logic is very clear and it's right there in front of all of us on the page. Christ, he says, will be honored in my body by death because to me to die is gain. He tells us, just a few verses down, what he means by gain in death. Verse 23. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. You see it? Christ, He will be exalted in my body by death because to me to die is gain, meaning, in other words, dying or to depart the body is to be even closer to Jesus, to Christ. That movement in Paul is worship. Worship shines the light on the object being worshipped. Paul is saying, look at the internal essence of my heart of worship. I cherish Christ as gain, even as more gain than all that this life has to offer. Loved ones, family, career, fame, fortune, many good gifts of God. The, the, the key to worship is not to not enjoy God's gifts and a spouse and children and grandchildren or parents and friends. That's not the key. The key is be thankful for those. And I do enjoy that. Now, in comparison to that, this is where we are to be on a pursuit. Is Christ better than all that life supplies? And so the essence of worship, it is seeking. It's the movement day after day after day of seeking to be satisfied with Christ. More than all of life. It's what he means to die. For me, it would be gain, not loss. Okay, his logic is the same with the living, right? If Paul does not get killed, he says... But he, get, he gets released, he's acquitted in his trial, and he's freed from jail. Same logic. Christ will be honored in my body, that is, in my mortal life, by living a few more years, he'll be honored and exalted, because to me, to live is gain. Christ is gain in my living. And he explains what he means 
by that, just flip over a page to Philippians 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I count everything in comparison as loss because of the surpassing worth, value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There it is. To live is Christ. It means to count everything as loss in comparison to the value of gaining Christ, walking with Christ, knowing the Holy Trinity by the indwelling of the Spirit. You see, to gain Christ in chapter 3, verse 8, like chapter 1, verse 21, to die. His gain. So to live is Christ for Paul means experiencing Christ as gain now in life, not just in death. Living and dying can both be acts of worship, of exalting Christ. How? When we have hearts that value Christ is better than all. As gain to us now and for all eternity. And that, not heroin, that is what moves our lives along. That's worship. That's not simplistic. It's deeply profound. Not simplistic, but it's simple. To live is Christ. To die is gain. That is the key to approaching persecution that's coming more and more to us American Christians. That's the key standing for the truth in the midst of the cultural onslaught against biblical Christians. And also, as we gather as believers at Sovereign Grace Fellowship to express our worship through forms this text informs us of why we do it. It informs us of what are we doing? Why are we here Sunday after Sunday? What are we pursuing together in our singing, in our, in our praying, in our confessing of sin, in our preaching, in our hearing, in our reading Scripture out loud, in our eating the Lord's Supper, it informs what we're seeking to do together. This corporate worship 
of those who have been plucked out of the world through the miracle of new birth, that ongoing corporate worship is an essential exercise for the souls of Jesus' people. And it is for them, the church, to wisely decide whether they gather together as a church in the context of a contagious virus. It's up to them. It is not the domain of the civil government. And so let me close over the next few minutes in drawing out a few implications of what we have heard of worship here. Implications for what we do and what we should be doing on Sunday mornings. We come to church. We speak that way as Christians, right? Yes, we are the church, but we come to, to the gathering, which church means. You're called out, and, you, and it's an assembly. You're gathering. We gather. We come to church. This is the point. And we use the forms of worship with the goal of gaining more of Christ, the presence of Christ, the influence of the Spirit of Christ, finding our contentment in the midst of the storms of life in Christ. We come for the purpose as believers to pursue together our contentment and joy in Him by the Holy Spirit. So what that means is if people come to Sunday morning church gatherings with an attitude of, well, I'm here doing my duty. It doesn't, doesn't really matter if I'm on a pursuit to find God and the gospel is my joy while we are singing. I don't necessarily have to do that. We're singing. Bible says sing. Evidently, you know, we sing songs to God and he wakes up grumpy and this makes him probably a little bit more happy. So we want to encourage God by our singing. Whether my heart is delighting in God, not, not relevant, we just sing. If you come to church with an attitude like that, you have just driven a stake through the heart of worship. Or if you come with the attitude, look, as long as we make the music professional, Oh, they're really good. Oh, yeah, and we make sure that the, the lyrics we sing, they're theologically sound. That's what counts. But it doesn't really matter whether our hearts are seeking God as our pleasure in the singing. It doesn't really matter there. That destroys worship. We should come to Sunday morning church gatherings, to the scripture reading, to the corporate prayer, to the congregational singing, to the preaching, to the communion table. We should come week after week as the deer pants for the water brook. So my soul pants for you, oh God. Psalm 42 gives us that picture. It's 105 degrees outside. 
That deer has its tongue swelling, getting dehydrated, feels the thirst and the emptiness, but knows where the brook is two miles out there and starts to move. That's worship of water. That water, that source of life, the element that quenches the thirst and satisfies the deer, that's what's exalted, not the deer. People look at it. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at Psalm 43 and get a picture, and you see it, and you go, wow, that water must be really important. And good. <coughs> People were to see. Was to see in each other. Wow! That gospel, that Lord Jesus must be really good to those people. Look at them. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's what makes worship God-centered. Songs and prayers and sermons are not merely traditions or duty. They are the means of experiencing God's filling his people with himself by the truth in the prayers, the truth in the scripture reading, the truth in the lyrics that we put to melody, the truth in the preaching, the truth in the communion table. The Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit, in truth. So it is. The truth then applied in our gatherings by the Holy Spirit in us. There is nothing that, that, that keeps God at the center of worship like that biblical conviction that the essence of worship is deep, heartfelt satisfaction in Him and that that pursuit together on Sunday mornings is why we gather. Worship is an end in itself. It is never a means to some other goal. To the extent that a person would come to a Sunday morning worship service and say, God, my life's falling apart over here. My marriage is struggling. This is, I want you to fix this. And so I'll worship you if you fix this. And I'm going to go to you, but my real goal right now is not satisfaction in you no matter what happens. My goal is in my worship, oh, would you please, please,
Paul's desire to honor Christ was the end. How? By his words. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain more than Christ. That is why throughout church history, the worship of Christ has manifested itself in singing and in preaching and in faithfulness in marriage and in serving prison time for refusing to not honor Christ. I'm going to honor Christ and thus disobey civil governments. The worship of Christ has manifested itself and will continue by being shamed by Christ-hating, Bible-despising, sexual revolutionaries of our day. And that worship of Christ throughout the centuries has exalted Jesus in many, many persons who were in their worship slowly burned to death on the stake or torn to pieces by lions in the Roman Colosseum all because they were new creatures in Christ Jesus who for them who lived meant pursuing their gain in Christ and to die was to gain the goal of being in the presence of Christ awaiting the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, his blood that makes any of these words of this sermon a reality. Thank you for it.